I was reminded of a story this week in talking to some people. Uh, seven years ago, uh, a group from our church went on a mission trip. And at the time, we had this big old bus, and they were taking, the, they left at like 11.30 at night or midnight because they had an early flight uh, the next morning out of DFW Airport at, uh, in Dallas. And I don't know if you've ever been to DFW. It is, you know, one of the most well-designed airports in the country. That's sarcasm. Uh, but they were headed there, and, uh, uh, and so they left at around 11.30 midnight, and my phone rang at 3 a.m. I didn't hear it right off the bat. Uh, I remember, I was remembering this morning, I remember hearing the last ring, and then it cut off. And then it dinged a couple seconds later because I got a voicemail. And so I remember I picked it, I still, I saved the voicemail, it's still on my phone. Um, and there's this voicemail uh, that says, hey, uh, Pastor Josh, I know you're, you're probably asleep, but we just blew a tire right outside of Rockwall. We're okay, it's just one tire. And so I listened to that and, and I remember I laid back down and, and Katie asked what was going on. I told her and I said, uh, you know, one tire, they'll be, they should still make it on time. And uh, Katie said, why don't you just, you know, call my dad real quick. Her, Katie's parents live in Dallas and uh, just give them a heads up because they, they have, the, the church they go to had this whole fleet of vans and buses, you know, 15 passenger, 25 passenger, some a little bit bigger than that. Uh, just give him, you know, give him a heads up that just in case something goes wrong. And so uh, we called Katie's dad and told him that, you know, just, just in case, you know, you may want to go ahead and call the guy who's in, who's in charge of the buses at the church. Just let him know we might need some help. And uh, hung up. Well, almost the second I hung up the phone, it rings again. And they say on the other end, hey, we just blew another tire. We should be still okay with just two tires out. It was, it was a big bus. I think it was a... Um, I can't remember how big it was, maybe a 30, anybody remember how big our bus used to be? 25 passenger bus maybe, something like that. Uh, we just blew another tire, but we should be okay. We're just going to go slow. Uh, we go about 30 miles an hour. We're, we're passing through Rockwall. They're almost to the bridge. And we should, if we just go, that we should still make it on time. And uh, the second I hung up the phone, it rings again. Well, we blew a third tire and we're stuck at a gas station. <laughs> and uh, I said, well... Uh, well, let's see what we can do. And so I call Katie's dad, and what had happened was, transpired without our knowing it. The second we had called him, he threw his clothes on, jumped in his car, and was headed to the church. And on the way to their church, he was calling the guy who was in charge of the buses and saying, hey, I'm taking a bus. Uh, and so I call him. He's getting on one of their bus. He's already there getting on the bus saying, okay, where are they? I said, well, don't you need to leave the house and get to the, he said, no, I'm already in the bus. We're, I'm leaving right now. Where are they at? And so he, he books it down the highway and uh, gets there, pulls in. They, throw, they quickly unload our bus, throw all the stuff on that bus, and they book it to DFW, making it literally just like, I mean, we're talking home alone, running in the gate as it's shutting down type of deal. And uh, they, Katie's dad, uh, his name is Steve, and from then until now, anybody who was on that trip still calls him Superman Steve because he showed up just in the nick of time and saved the day. And it's even, the story even gets funnier. Uh, Jerry Don uh, Roberts and, and Anita, his wife, were driving the crew to the airport. And uh, uh, I, they stayed in a hotel overnight and we, we got some new tires on the bus and they were driving back and I get a phone call. Hey, 
Pastor Josh, we just blew two tires, but we should be okay. <laughs> okay, Jerry, Don, I don't know what you're doing to that bus, but uh, just try to get back. And he said, oh, and then about 10 minutes later, he calls, well, we blew a third tire, and we're on the, we're on the side of the road just short of New Boston <laughs> coming back. And I said, well, um, we'll I'll call Baker's, and we'll, we'll figure it out. And so I called Baker's. They run down there. And about 30 minutes later, Jerry Don calls me back again and says, hey, we hitchhiked, and we're in the car with this people. They, they say they're Christians, so we should be good, and they're bringing us back to the queen. I said, Jerry Don, like, I'm going to see you on the news. Like, <laughs> stay on the phone until you get in town, okay? And uh, you have to tell, they're not here this morning. You have to tell them, and I, talk, I mentioned them in the, in the sermon. Um, but uh, they made it back okay. They're all safe, and, and it took Baker's a while to find the bus, but he found it and carted it back here, and we got, so in the course of two days, we bought six new tires for that bus, um, but they had made it just in time to the airport. But the thing I want to hone in on was my father-in-law, Steve, that without even thinking at the inconvenience of getting up at three in the morning and how that he was going to throw off his day and ultimately throw off the week, because if you get, you know, three hours of sleep, it doesn't just throw off one day, it throws off days. And uh, he, all he thought was, these people need to get where they're going so they can tell more people about Jesus. He didn't even hesitate. Just jumped up and served, jumped up and ministered, instantaneous. And that's what we're going to look at today, is looking beyond ourselves and looking at others. Acts chapter 2, verse 45, we've been looking at the purposes of the church, the, the, the church when it was founded. You know, Jesus died, rose from the dead, taught his disciples, there were 120 of them, and then he went to heaven and then those disciples, after 10 days, received the Holy Spirit, walked out on the street, shared the gospel, 3,000 people get saved, and so now they have a church, and it's 3,120 people, is how big the church is. And they do five things when it starts. And we've been looking at what these five things are. And so today we're looking at this next one, is, is serving one another. Acts chapter 2, starting in, or in verse 45. If you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack there, you can grab that. It's on page 911. Uh, but also, if you don't have a Bible, just take that Bible home. All right? That can be yours. Your Bible. So Acts 2, 45. It says, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they were selling their So what would happen is, in the church, they saw that somebody had a need, and if they didn't have the money to pay for it, they would just sell something and then pay for it with that money. They didn't think, well, I like my thing. You know, <laughs> they, that, they just need to figure out their own deal. They got in their own predicament. You know, and if something comes up, then I'll, then I'll help out a little bit. They just saw the need and instantaneously said, okay, I'm going to give. What we see actually in a few chapters is people selling off houses, people selling off property and bringing the money to the apostles and saying, all right, give it to somebody who needs it. Just give it. And so that's what they're doing, is they're, they're fulfilling each other's needs. They're serving one another. And this serving one another, this, this ministering to one another, is so foundational to the work of the church that it's included in the five things that the church did when it started. And the thing about ministering and the thing about serving is it's never about us, the ones doing the serving, the ones doing the ministering. Serving and ministering as, as, as they're meant to be done are selfless activities. That means no complaining, no getting frustrated, no developing resentment because you're doing it more than somebody else. 
And all of those concepts about serving and seeing the church do this is very interesting considering the leaders of the church, the, the, the 12 disciples, the apostles, where they had just been in the couple of years before this. Let's look at that. Starting in Mark chapter 9, Jesus with his disciples, verse 33, it'll be on the screens, says, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, this is Jesus, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now picture it, okay? They've been traveling on the road, they've been having an argument, and they get to where they're going, and Jesus confronts them, what were y'all arguing about? Like, when you were growing up, did your parents ever get onto you and your siblings? What, what are y'all arguing about? What's, what's, what's really going on here? And you got to determine who's telling the truth in the discussion. And so all the disciples, Jesus says, what were y'all arguing about? All the disciples get quiet, because they don't want to tell Jesus what they were really talking about. Talking about which one of them is the best, which one of them is the greatest. But Jesus knows what they were discussing. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He's telling them, I know y'all were talking about who's the greatest, who's the best. If you really want to be the best, that means you've got to be last. That means you've got to be servant to everybody. That means you've got to stop asserting your rights and saying, well, you're the best, you're the greatest. I can almost picture it as though, say, you know, Peter or James or John saying, well, Jesus called me first. Like, he, he called me first. Matthew, you're way out. He called us first. Like, we were in the group before you were. All right, you, you don't even qualify. You don't even know what you're talking about. Judas, you're kind of, you know, weird. So, you know, you're going to do your thing. So we're not going to talk to you. And, you know, Nathaniel, you're, you're whatever. And Bartholomew, you know, we, we don't talk about you much. And so it's all about us. And Jesus says, no, listen, guys, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you're trying to be best in the kingdom of God, you've got to be servant to everybody. You've got to stop trying to puff your chest out and say, I am the greatest. And you would think this would stick, right? You would think it would really drive home. Because if you notice what Jesus says there, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. And he doesn't really correct them either. He doesn't say, stop it. Stop talking about who's the best. I mean, look at what he says. He says, if you must be first, you must be last of all. You must be servant of all. He was teaching how greatness is really achieved. He was showing them the path they were pursuing was the wrong one. But what was fascinating to me is this discussion among the disciples about who is the best. This isn't the only time they do this. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Now, this is just at this right here, Luke 22, just after the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Jesus has washed everybody's feet in the room, including Judas. And then Judas gets up and he goes to get the mob to come and arrest Jesus. They have the Last Supper, and then this happens. Verse 24 of Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? 
is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So again, the disciples are trying to puff themselves up, trying to think, they're thinking all about themselves. I'm greater, I'm better. Again, in the midst of Jesus just having washed their feet, just having redefined the Passover meal with the Last Supper, and then they start having an argument among themselves at the table about which one of them is better than any other one. And Jesus says, you're missing it again. You're missing it again. It's almost as though Jesus is saying a key quality for, for greatness in the kingdom of God is not pursuing it. And if you pursue greatness, if you puff yourself up as greatness, that is pride and that disqualifies the greatness. He's saying that's not what it's about. It's about your heart. And you know, as Jesus pointed out there, pointing out himself in that last sentence, I am among you as one who serves. If there were any person in all of history who deserves to be served, it's Jesus. If there, are any, if there is anyone who doesn't need to serve, it's Jesus. He's the creator. He's the king. He deserves in all perfection and holiness and worthiness to have everyone bow down, and they will one day, to him. And he says, but I'm here serving. I'm here serving. So follow my example is kind of the, the, the implication here. I'm among you as one who serves. So follow my example and serve. Y'all stop arguing about who's the greatest. Y'all start serving like I am, washing each other's feet. And this happened one more time. One more time. These disciples wanting what they felt was owed them because they were working for Jesus. And so they're saying, I deserve to be called the greatest. I deserve this certain position, this certain uh, uh, access. Or I deserve this, that, or the other thing because I've been doing so much. And so look at what happens here. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? What's interesting is in the passage right before uh, this, um, I believe it's either right before or right after Mark chapter 10, uh, this, Jesus says this exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? But... It's in a completely different context. Uh, it's right after. So these guys they say, give us whatever we want. Give us a blank check, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Well, right after this, there's a blind guy who comes up to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me for, to do for you? And the man says, I want to see. And he's talking physical, but Jesus gives him not only physical sight, he gives him eternal sight. And these, but the disciples aren't thinking at all about eternity, even though their question may be framed that way. They're thinking about, you know, uh, uh, personal pride. They're thinking about getting a position above everybody else. And so Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And this is what they say. Uh, verse 37. They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. So they're saying, when you get to heaven, Jesus, and you're sitting on your great throne, I know you're supposed to be at the right hand of the Father, but that's okay, just, you know, 
pull up some chairs. Make places for us to sit next to you. So that when everybody looks at you, Jesus, they're going to see us. They're going to see us as sitting right there, you know, in the place of, of, uh, of greatness, next to Jesus. Because Jesus, you know, we were some of the first ones you called, Jesus, James, and John. Like, we're, we're here. We've been here the whole time. Look at what Jesus says to him. Again, he doesn't say, what in the world, guys? Like, are you serious? Right? You're in timeout. Like, you're in disciple timeout. You need to go and sit on the mountain. We'll come back for you in a little bit. You just get out of here. Look at it. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus is saying, are you ready to suffer like I'm going to suffer? They, says, they, say, yeah, then they say yes, but they really don't know what they're saying. Yes, too. And so I love Jesus' response. Great, you will suffer like that. But you're not going to sit in my right hand or my left. Like, that's, that's already been decided, so don't worry about that, guys. The word gets around, verse 41. When the ten heard it, the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, you think those other disciples were mad, like righteously indignant? Like, I can't believe those guys had the gall to ask that. Or do you think they were more mad because they didn't get to ask first? Like, like they wanted to ask before James, but James and John snuck it in, and they really wanted to be the right hand to the left. I mean, we saw earlier, you know, this was a discussion with all the disciples wanted to be the greatest. Now, here come James and John asking Jesus for the greatest position in all of heaven to be sitting next to Jesus. And so all the disciples are mad at him. And Jesus knows about this, and so he does something. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, Jesus tells these guys, it's not about being great in the sight of other people. He says, that's not what is most important. Would you rather be considered great in the eyes of people looking at you, or would you rather be considered great in the eyes of God? And to be great in the eyes of God means to be a servant. It means to be a servant of all. That means foregoing personal preferences. That means foregoing personal opinions. That means, that means serving the needs of somebody else before our own. A great many times, that means keeping our mouth shut when all we want to do is air a contrary opinion. It means being a servant, serving people in whatever capacity that means in order to point people to Jesus. And sometimes that may be difficult, sometimes that may be hard, because we're called to be, what does he say? A servant to all. Not just a servant to the people who serve you, not just a servant to the people who are nice, not just a servant to, to you know, the people who are easy to like, but even a servant to the people who hate your guts. Even to a servant to the people who are just straight mean. 
who, who, who seem to like, you know, drink the poison of bitterness every single day and it just makes their face everywhere. He says, be a servant to them. Just as he was. Notice he said, as the son of man, that's his title, as I am. And that, 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 that one meeting when they were right after the, the Last Supper, you remember Jesus washing the disciples' feet, washed all of their feet. Peter's about to not deny him three times. Judas is about to go and betray him. Jesus is washing those guys' feet, knowing that they're about to do what they're going to do. How would you like to wash Judas' feet? Do you like to be breaking toes? Oh, I'm sorry, I slipped. Like, my bad. Jesus washed his feet, knowing what's coming. Because, again, for Jesus, he's being a servant to all, to every single one, to all of them. And for us, the way that looks, being a servant to all, that means, you know, every single individual. And how we treat them, Jesus says, you treat them in a certain way, you're doing that to me. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, 40. The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So what you do to to other people and how you do to other people, it's as though you're doing it to Jesus. How you treat them, how you speak to them, how you you minister to them. You never know what the other person's going through that day. They may make a smart aleck remark or they may say something, but you don't know what happened at their house that morning. You don't know what they've been going through for 10 years. And they just need some Christian who's got Jesus in them to pour Jesus back into them. They just need a little something. Because have you ever had somebody pour Jesus into you? And you know how that felt, right? You got the text at just the right moment, the right words of encouragement, a hug, a prayer. Well, that person that that Jesus put in your path, put in your way, needs help and he put you there to help him I remember I've mentioned it before there's a movie uh, I remember watching it's been a few years since I watched it but this guy goes you know to be a help to some of his friends and and he's not Um, he did some not very honorable things and this guy comes across his path and begins to help him in the journey and the, the guy who needed the help yells at this other guy at one point, why did you help me? I don't understand, why? And the other guy said, well, Jesus put you in my way, I had to help. How many people have, have, has he put in our way that needed service, that needed ministry for us to help them? And Jesus says there, Matthew 25, 40, if you do to any of them, you do it to me. As you do to them, you're doing to me. So it's not just what we do, it's also how we do it. Have, <laughs> have you ever been around somebody, or maybe you're a parent and you, you've said it to your kids, and you've asked them to do something and they do it, they do it, but the way they do it, you know they're not really liking what they're doing? You know what I mean? Like, they're going to stomp and pound and putting the dishes up and on the verge of breaking every single dish because they're not happy with having to do the dishes or taking the trash out or do whatever. You you do it in such a way that you make everybody know that you're not happy about doing it. You know what I'm talking about? I know none of y'all are like that. That's everybody else. But but that's that's churches down the road. That's not you people. That's other people. 
And it's only kids, it's never adults, right? And so it's how we do it as well. And so if, if what we do for other people is also doing for the Lord, look at what it says in Psalm 100 verse 2. Serve the Lord with frustration. Serve the Lord with bitterness. Serve the Lord with anger. Serve the Lord with irritation. Serve the Lord with grunting. Serve the Lord with pouting. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So if what we do for other people is doing for the Lord, and he says serve the Lord with gladness, gladness, gladness. Some of us, me at the top of the list, need to have a frequent recalibration of our glad meter. You know, it's like taking your tires in to be rotated so that your car starts veering, stops veering off the center line. You need to recalibrate yourself. Rotate your inner spiritual tires and serve the Lord with gladness. Service is supposed to be a happy activity. Service isn't supposed to be forced. Uh, Gladness isn't supposed to be faked. Our response to service opportunities and how we serve should be coated in gladness, and gladness comes from love. Love. Because if you love the person you're serving, then it's not a difficult thing to be glad about doing the serving. Even if you don't get recognition for it. If you love the one you're serving, it's, it's, it's not hard to be glad in the service. It comes from a place of love. And what's so important about this are some key things that Jesus said. John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, I love the way that says, he says, a new commandment I give you, love each other. And now here the world's existed for thousands and thousands of years, and now he's saying, here's a whole brand new commandment. And they're thinking, okay, good, I'm gonna write this one down, new commandment, we got 10 commandments, here's number 11, here we go, all right, Jesus, give to me. Love each other. Aren't we supposed to be doing that already, like loving one another? He says, pay attention, love each other. Follow my mouth. Love each other. Just as I have loved you. That's the key there. As I have loved you, you love each other. Verse 35. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the love that you display, love that is the motivation for our service, the love that you display proves whether or not you are a disciple of Jesus. Catch that? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. To me, that is one of the most convicting verses. If Jesus were to take a love audit of my life, would there be a stamp of disciple at the end of that? He says, all people will know that you belong to me by how you love, by how you love. And if we put a cap on our love, you know, because love in our society, we like to say that love, you know, is, you know, it's an emotion, it's how you feel about something, but not really. Love is a conscious decision. Because you're not going to feel it, always. 
but it's a conscious decision you make. I am choosing to love. I'm choosing. I'm choosing it right now for this situation, for this person. I am choosing love. And so what Jesus is saying to us, if you choose love, if you choose to love one another, if you choose to love one another, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when the other person is extremely unlovable, you choose to love them, and in choosing to love them, you show that you are my disciples because you are mimicking me. You think it was easy for Jesus to love us? Us, bunch of sinners? He's dying on the cross, knowing that we're going to keep on sinning? knowing that the majority of the people in his creation are not going to believe. But he dies anyway because he loves anyway. He chose it. He chose to love. And because he chose to love, he was able to get up on that cross and die and raise from the dead. You see, if our love is based on an emotion, that emotion fluctuates. It goes up and down and all over, however we're feeling in the moment, whether we had you know, Taco Bell for lunch or Pizza Hut or whatever we're feeling, we're going to feel it, and it's going to be how we feel. You know what I mean? And, and Jesus says, no, love is supposed to be a conscious decision you make so that no matter how you feel in the moment, you can still love. You may not feel like it. You may feel bad. You may feel awful, but you've already decided you're going to love. And so because you're going to love, you're going to serve with gladness. And because you're serving with gladness, you're going to point people to me, and you're going to be imitating me and be great in the kingdom of heaven because you love. And we love, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he loved us first. So our love is in response to his love. When we begin to understand that he chose love for us, then that love should, should not just be reciprocated to him, but should flow into us and out of us into other people and on to other people that we love because he loved us. Only because he loved us do we truly know what love really is and are we able then to go and give it to other people. So we love because he loved us and he came for us in love to serve. And so then it's on us then to go and love and to serve others. Anybody, everybody, to love every single one. Every single one. Not just everyone, like one word, not just everyone, but every one. One person by themselves, singular, out there, you know, maybe people that society overlooks and culture doesn't care about. It's on us, the people of Jesus. He put us here as ambassadors, as missionaries to reach the one that is out there. To love every one. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 15. Maybe this afternoon, here's a challenge for you. Go and read Luke chapter 15. It's three parables with the same point in all three parables. Parable of lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And here's one of them. Luke chapter 15, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And this, in this parable, all three of the parables here in Luke chapter 15 are about finding lost things. Things, that are, things in relation as a parable to unbelieving people and going and finding them and bringing them to belief. And so Jesus says, okay, 
Say, for instance, I've got 99 believers. I'm going to leave the 99 believers trusting they're growing and they're doing their thing, and I'm going to go find the one who's lost. I'm going to go pursue the one who's lost. Even if that one who is lost is running away, I'm going to go after him because I love the one. That doesn't mean I don't love the 99. I do, but I'm going to chase down that one. I'm going to go after that one, and I'm going to love that one even though it's out there by itself, even though that one has, has you know, felt abandoned by everybody else. I'm going after the one. The one. It's the image, you know, they always say that if there was only you as a sinner on the planet, Jesus still would have come and died for you. And he did. Because he loves us. All of us. Wherever we are. He loves us. And he came and he died. And he rose from the dead, seeking the one. Because every one matters to Jesus. Everyone matters to Jesus. And so because everyone matters to Jesus, everyone should matter to us. Matter to us in how we love, matter to us in how we serve. You know, throughout Jesus' ministry, as he's out there serving, as he's out there doing, Jesus was often serving and ministering to people that nobody else would. Nobody else would go near Nobody else would definitely touch. I mean, guys like the lepers, people were afraid of them. Jesus would walk up to them and grab them and hold them, heal them. Nobody wanted to go near them. Zacchaeus, when the, in the story of Zacchaeus, they, they use a derogatory term to talk about Zacchaeus, trying to describe the kind of person he is. Jesus went after him, the one. Even some of his own disciples Simon, the zealot, wants to overthrow the government. Matthew, the tax collector, everybody hates his guts. He takes their money. Jesus goes after the one. Peter, the smart mouth. Judas, the traitor. Jesus goes after the one. Jesus loves the one because every single one matters to Jesus. No matter what they've done, no matter what they've done to you, Jesus loves the one. Even if it's you, and you say, well, so-and-so said this about me, and they said that about me, and I know that I'm not worth much because of this, that, and the other thing, and I chose to do this, and I'm paying for that. Jesus loves you. There's nothing that you can do that can undo the love he has for you. Even in that, there's nothing that you can do that can undo the, 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 the death and resurrection he died for you. He loves everyone. And we need to start seeing people the way Jesus sees people, that everyone matters to Jesus. Even if they're hard and even if they're difficult, in our perspective, that, is, that doesn't matter at all. All that matters is this is a person that needs Jesus. Jesus came and died for me, and Jesus brought love for me. And so because Jesus did that for me, when I was just the one, I mattered to Jesus as one. I should then go and, and, and help everyone else understand that they matter as well. They don't just matter to Jesus, that because I matter to Jesus, they matter to me. Even if I don't matter to them, they matter to me because they matter to Jesus. Everyone matters to Jesus. Everyone. Even the guys nailing him to the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. The guys nailing him to the cross. I don't know about you, but I'd be saying, Father, shoot some lightning at these guys, like right now, this hurts. Every single one matters to Jesus. 
as a shepherd going out searching for the one. He had to be on the lookout for the lost sheep. And because he was on the lookout, so should we be. Looking for the one. Looking for the lost sheep. Looking for the one that Jesus has put in our path. And so I ask the question for you. Who is your one? Who is the one he has put in your path? Who is the one? Maybe it's somebody sitting on the row next to you. Maybe it's somebody who lives in your house. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's somebody who works with you. Maybe it's somebody you're going to see this week that you don't even know you're going to run into yet. Who is your one? It's a perspective thing we have to have that if everyone matters to Jesus, I matter to Jesus, then everyone should matter to me. Every one, every single one needs to be loved by me because I have received the love of Jesus and not received it to, 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 to hang on to it, not to be you know, a cul-de-sac for the love of Jesus and just let it you know, pile up with me, but allow it to flow through me into everybody else because everyone matters to Jesus. Everyone matters to Jesus. So who is your one? Who is it? Maybe you're, some of you are already seeing a face. Somebody you know needs Jesus right now. Somebody you know that he's already put in your path that needs to come to Jesus. Maybe somebody you need to share the gospel with. Maybe somebody you need to grab and bring to church next week. Maybe the one that Jesus has put with you this week needs desperate prayer. And Jesus injected you into their lives for that very purpose. Everyone matters to Jesus. Maybe today in this room, you are one who needs to be found. Maybe today in this room or watching online, you are one who needs the good shepherd to pick you up and rejoice. And all that means is you believe that Jesus is God's son. You believe that he died so all your sins are forgiven. You believe he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. And you believe that, then you're saved. Saved from hell, saved from punishment. And you're a Christian. And you believe that, you get to go to heaven. Free pass. That means if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, that can never be undone. That means there's no sin that you can do tomorrow that can take away your salvation. There's no sin you can do tomorrow that can undo what he did. It's done for all time. It's settled. Your name is written down in his book of life, and there's no eraser powerful enough to get rid of it. You're his for all time. So will you believe in Jesus today? Will you believe in Jesus today? This is what we're going to do. In just a second, I'm going to pray. And, and if you need to make a decision for, for Jesus, if you need to believe in him, I'm going to ask you to come down here and, and talk to me. Or Jared. Raise your hand, Jared. He's our other pastor right there. You can go and talk to Jared or me. I'll be at the front. He'll be at the back. Get you Conan coming. You can get, catch either one of us. And we want to talk to you and pray with you about knowing Jesus. If you want to believe in Jesus today. Be found by him today. Or maybe you want to be baptized. Being baptized, it's, baptism doesn't save you, but baptism shows the world you belong to Jesus. 
Baptism is a public declaration of your salvation. I'm declaring to the world I belong to Jesus. I can tell you the baptistry is clean and it's full of warm water. We can do it today. We can do it right now. We got robes. We got t-shirts. We can take care of it. We got towels up there. The whole, we got hair dryers if you're worried about that. We can do it right now if you want to get baptized and show the world you belong to him. Maybe you want to become a member of the church and say, all right, I'm ready to, to, to commit to this deal and, and, and put my life where Jesus has me to be. Then you can do that today too. We got cards right here. We have pins that probably don't work, but you can have my pen and you can fill that card out and we can do it now. So whatever decision he's got for you to do, whether to be saved, baptized, join the church, maybe your decision that you need to make is you need to come down here and pray for the one that he's put on your heart. Pray for your courage to speak to that one. Pray for that, that the heart of the one who needs uh, to hear what Jesus has put on you. Then you can come and pray as well. All right, so I'm gonna pray and when I say amen, that's your cue to do whatever you've got to do. Y'all pray with me. God, I thank you for your, I thank you for your mercy and your grace in taking care of us. In the same way with your own disciples there on the road and in those rooms and great patience with them, guiding them to the truth that being a servant should be our goal. Not greatness, not recognition, not wanting everybody to look at us, but being a servant, servant to all, anybody and everybody that you put in our path. God, help us to see who the one is that you've got for us to serve. Not that you only have one for us to serve, but who is the next one? When we serve that one, God, give me another one. Who is the next one? God, help us to help us to love as you loved us and serve as you have served us. With never-ending gladness. Gladness because of you. Gladness because of our salvation. God, I thank you for your love. Praise you for your love. God, if anyone in here needs to believe in you now, I pray they would. They'd stop putting it off, stop having internal arguments with you about, about maybe next time, but they would do it today and say, yes, I want to believe. And this would become their spiritual birthday. God, I thank you. I thank you that you're with us always. In your name I pray, amen.